You are listening to a Nerd Room podcast production. We the Nerd. Bunch of nerds. Welcome to Nerd. We talk all things Star Wars, Marvel, DC, and beyond. This episode number three hundred and fifty-one. We're discussing Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania. I'm your host, Tim, and I am Ian. Ian, man, welcome back to the podcast. We've got a big film review. The first film of 2023 inside of the MCU. The first film of Phase Five and the kickoff to the next Avengers film, Avengers: Kang Dynasty. All happens within this somewhat of a small movie but brother how you doing man how you feeling how's life right now feeling good man all good yeah i uh kind of wrapped up a lot of work this is my holiday season so it's nice to have some time off uh been taking in some some movies some comic books uh and yeah been enjoying it man been enjoying the freedom it'd be nice to to talk about this movie because it's it's a pretty interesting one All's good. All's good in the hood. Usually it's busy times, but I'm I'm enjoying it at the moment. Freedom. Awesome, man. We'll enjoy it. And you had some time this past weekend, like we all did, to go and enjoy Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Like I said, this really kicking off Phase 5 for the MCU. We had a point going back inside of the Infinity Saga where every film sequentially led to something more inside of a single grand narrative that was the Infinity Saga, pointing at Thanos and the Infinity Stones. Throughout Phase 4 and now into Phase 5, we've kind of got this much wider cast of characters and stories all concurrently happening, but not necessarily crossing over and having meaningful impact as you move from show to film, back to film. And in sequence, all of these films don't necessarily cascade from one to another. So it's a little bit of a different approach to the MCU where... The one, the film or TV show that came before isn't necessarily the prequel and or sequel to what is coming next. But Quantumania really kind of draws a line in the sand here and starts to build a bit more into something that is larger. We had seeds of it inside of Loki season two. The multiverse has become a somewhat of a constant inside of the MCU as we saw it in No Way Home, as we saw it in Multiverse of Madness. And in less so inside of quantum mania but it's starting to build kind of those aspects of the multiverse and its importance going forward inside of the multiverse saga and it's this film here that really introduces some of the concepts of what is meant to be the main villain of the multiverse saga in kang time traveling kang we see some variants and we've seen him in the past of course in loki season two as the one who or he who remains i believe is his name but we really get a kind of a, a good look at what the future of the mcu holds but that's contained within marvel's i think fifth or sixth trilogy that they are now completing if you count cap thor iron man spider-man avengers we're gonna have guardians this year this will be i guess this is the six into the number seven of the trilogies completed inside of the mcu over the last 12 or 13 years so quite wild that ant-man has a trilogy of films what do you think like if you were to pick a character that's gonna have a trilogy outside of those big ones that we mentioned ant-man doesn't pop to the top of the list does it yeah i agree i actually saw an interview actually with paul rudd um, recently and it was quite interesting just seeing 
what his thoughts were on it. And I think the idea was, you know, they put this idea forward and they talked about Kang and Kang was always going to be a kind of Ant-Man villain. So I think with the way things have kind of panned out for him, he, he thinks it, it kind of made sense that they were going to bring Ant-Man into this, uh, into this story along with Kang. And of course, like, cause he was the guy who did the whole thing with time travel with the quantum realm. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of makes sense. You know, you got to kind of use that. I think that's where, you know, I'm a little confused now and then with time travel, with multiverses, with the quantum realm. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, it's actually important that they are utilizing Ant-Man because they're going to have to explain how that, that kind of works. Um, they're going to have to use that with future movies as well. Because if you you know you don't use Ant Man, it might raise questions later on. Why aren't they using Ant Man to to kind of you mm. know adjust time and do the same thing that he did with Endgame? So I think you know Ant Man has to be a kind of key player in this, um, or his tech does anyway. So I think they're kind of setting that up, and I think you know we will see a lot more of um, of Ant Man in in the Avengers movies coming up. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And let's let's talk a little bit about the quantum realm a little bit and see if we can hash out our understanding live here on the podcast of of what it all is and so one of the premises that they do set up with the quantum realm inside of ant-man 3 here is that time and space don't matter there like that's why kang the conqueror was sent there because he loses his ability to travel through time and impact different timelines and all that but in endgame do they, do they travel through the quantum realm or do they use it as sort of a, an entry point into time? Cause that's where there's a little bit of a disconnect for me here is how are they using that tech to travel through time? But in the same aspect, Kang is locked inside of the quantum realm to keep him out of the timelines. So that's where yeah. I'm kind of a bit confused with, with the quantum realm. I think that, I mean, that's an interesting discussion. I think that's something that I don't, know if there is a clear explanation at the moment and i think it's something that people are probably discussing and i for me i don't know if it's it's a plot hole that will never be answered or if it's something that later on will become a little more clearer because i think the quantum realm time travel the multiverses all really confuses me you have the time travel where you go back in time but that's not a multiverse but if you change something in the past you do actually create a new Mm -hmm. Um, multiverse and then you have the quantum realm which they used which really confuses me because you know you had scott go into the quantum realm he was gone for i think he says four hours but four years pass you know at a an atomic level but then you know you have um janet uh, fife michelle pfeiffer's character she's in there for 30 years but yeah. she's gone for 30 years so you know 30 years to her should be like thousands hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of years but it, it doesn't work like that and in this movie they go into the quantum realm they go even further down which you'd think would affect it more but they actually go down and come back and no time has passed at all yeah. so it's kind of There's... really weird how there is some kind of confusion there with how this this time play is working um and then you also have other shows that like seem to be breaking their own rules the mcu rules like um Miss Marvel. Miss Marvel, she goes back in time. And what she does in the past becomes her future. You know, her grandmother mm. sees her. So we're told in Endgame you can't do that. So it all becomes a little kind of messy, I think. And I think that's a, a big... I think that's one of my issues at the moment that I hope 
gets made more clear, um, especially with Kang, because Kang, every time they present us with Kang, Kang kind of tells us that he lives in this kind of non-linear um, world where time time is not linear, right? Mm-hmm. But that raises lots of questions. And I think for the one who remains, that makes a lot of sense because he's gone through it all and he's the ultimate Kang. You know, he's the guy who survived after the war between all the Kangs in the universes and he's the, the, the last one. But for all of the other Kangs, if they're, if time is not linear for them, what do they know? And, you know, what, do they know what will happen next? You know, do they, uh, it's, it's all very, very confusing. And that was my biggest issue with, not issue, but it was my biggest question coming out of Quantumania was the second, because I went to watch it the second time and I paid a little bit more attention to the story. And I think the second time I was really confused on all of the motivations of the different Kangs and what mm-hmm. they actually know and what they're actually going towards. And it's, I think, partly because of the use of time as a, a plot point, it's actually becoming very confusing, even for the writers of these stories. Yeah, um, and it's I, I, that's always the, the problem or the risk you run dealing with time travel. Uh, mm-hmm. You see it in the comic books, you've seen it in lots of movies where if you don't have this kind of Bible or set sort of rules to follow and adhere to strictly, you do run the risk of, of stepping on previous films or stories that deal with time and you kind of fold in on yourself. The way that I'm kind of looking at the quantum realm, the reason we're talking about this guys is to just kind of set this universe up because we spend the whole movie inside of the quantum realm and the mechanics of it do start to matter when you expand it out to the, the grander MCU and how that works, especially considering what happened inside of the of, of Endgame. So the way I'm kind of looking at the quantum realm is that there is indeed layers to the quantum realm where when you go down to this universe level, this where they end up in the film, that time and space doesn't matter. So that, that's, I guess, where Janet was for that whole time. She was down at that level. Well, I and... hope that was, yeah, because, I mean, that was the strange thing where at the end of Ant-Man on the Wasp, she sends um, Scott back into the quantum realm. She's like, yeah, go in, you know, get some samples. Mm-hmm. But, like, in this movie, she's just like, do not go into the quantum realm. What Do I wonder con- if it's if it's like but as you said, I think it's levels, right? It's, levels it's, and layers. Like where Scott goes and gets trapped, clearly time and space still matter. But as you go lower and lower, time and space become less important to the point where it doesn't exist mm-hmm. inside of where they trap Kang, where the other Kangs have trapped Kang. And so when you get to the bottom, time and space don't matter. And maybe that's why Janet was able to go. If you go directly from there to there, she's aged at the same pace, I guess. I guess, how does that work with time? I don't really know. I'm kind of trying to work this out as we go. And I guess well, she, she ages, but I mean, like certain people age there and some people don't. Like Kang doesn't age. And I guess that must be his suit or his tech that stops him I from guess. aging. I don't know. I'm getting more and more confused before we even <laughs> talked about the movie. But I guess Endgame, I'm, I guess I take the quantum realm as more of a doorway or a pathway where you can pass through it, where time matters and it doesn't matter. See, this is the thing. I don't know. We're not even talking about this anymore because I'm so damn confused. Dude, I think, but I think you're onto something there. I, I guess the idea is, as I, 
like I think I'm getting to a stage where it's better not to try and look too much I don't think you can dissect it too much but I do think like in Endgame they do navigate the space to go you know further back or less time back so Mm. I think the idea of the quantum realm is maybe it does depend on how far you go and to what areas you go and I think you just got to take it like that because the thing is like at the end of this movie the other Kangs are kind of um, affected by the death of a Kang. Now, they could have killed Kang the Conqueror, but they put him in this area of the quantum realm. And that would imply that maybe they didn't want him to die, which would probably mean that they didn't want time to pass. Is that right? I don't know. Am I, I'm confusing myself. <laughs> well, now that, now that everyone listening is uh, sufficiently confused, let's get into the movie a bit more. I tried to, we tried to lay a foundation there to help us understand a bit more of the quantum realm and its impact on the MCU. But I, uh, I found myself. You started confused. with time travel and the quantum realm to lay a foundation on this. <laughs> the whole movie is about the quantum realm, but really, the whole movie is is about Scott Lang and Cassie Lang having an adventure together. The one thing that I did like about this movie is where it started. It started with the family dynamic. It started with Scott Lang. It started with his relationship and give and take with Cassie Lang. Mm -hmm. And before we spend 90 plus percent of the movie inside of the quantum realm, we get some really fun stuff for me up front here with the Langs and Pim and the Van Dynes. But the whole family dynamic, I really enjoyed this piece. And Paul Rudd is, is just amazing in this role of Scott Lang. Yeah. What, are, what are your thoughts on kind of like this opening sequence and kind of the relationship with Cassie Lang, new actress playing Cassie Lang, which I thoroughly enjoyed her as well. And yeah. I would like to see a bit more of the father daughter dynamic, but I get it. I got it. And I, I think it was enough to kind of give you that emotional tether between the two to understand why, of course, Scott is doing this. And we also have to remember that we're not depending just on this film to establish that relationship. This goes all the way back to Ant-Man 1. Yeah. And so you have a lot of lineage there to bring into this film that shows that there is a very strong bond between that and him getting out of jail and him doing, in, I guess, Ant-Man and the Wasp, him having his time with her and really developing that relationship. And she is the first one he goes, goes to see in Endgame to make sure that she's still alive. And so there's there's a lot of weight that is carried through a series of films into this. And I think taking that baggage or that relationship that we got before into this i think really works well here where you just kind of go with their back and forth i thoroughly enjoyed that piece of it yeah um this is a difficult one because i think i'm with you a lot and i think that is my favorite part of the movie um and i think you know it sets up pretty well and i think that the seeds were planted to make that a really good part of this story of this movie but also i do feel that that is also a bit of a missed opportunity as the film progresses Mm. um mainly because like i think when i watch so for example when you watch the trailer i think what the trailer sets out and what the movie actually presents in terms of their family dynamic is very different you know their family dynamic at the start of the movie is really good and i think you know you do see that kind of closeness and you do see the the family and the way they interact with each other it's it's done really well as you said like i mean um paul rudd is is incredible i think the the new cassie she's she's a really kind of likable um mm. actress so she plays a likable character but i just don't think they jumped in enough 
with the arc. And I think that's one of my, one of the things that I think is a missed opportunity with this movie, that they didn't explore that. Because the trailer kind of sets out where you have this troubled relationship between the two of them. And I think they should have really kind of jumped deep into that. Like, you know, Scott's been gone for so long. He missed a big part of her life. He comes out and then he's always obsessed with his fame and himself and doing all these book signings and stuff like that. And then you have Cassie, who could have been a very troubled teenager. She's someone mm-hmm. who's kind of acting out. She's getting arrested. But they they do it in a very weak way where, you know, they show him doing his book signings, whatever. And then they have her. She gets in trouble, but it's not for something that's really that bad. And their relationship for me never feels troubled like it doesn't feel like they're that distant it just doesn't feel like there's that much closeness but it doesn't feel like there's any kind of um you know issues between the two of them Mm -hmm. and i think that could have been a really good because the trailer sets it up like that you know he's fighting for time with his daughter because he feels so distant from her and he feels so disconnected from her but in the show in the movie we don't get to feel that i feel and then later you know they go in and they get stranded together, but they're very quickly separated and they never really actually have to do anything together. They're always separate on their own little adventures in mm. different places. Whereas it would have been a really good story and it would have given them character arcs, which in the end, they didn't really have an arc. They went in and came out exactly the same people. Yeah. Whereas if they'd gone in where they kind of don't get along and they find it difficult to communicate with each other, and through this adventure, they work together and they defeat some big, big villain and they come out with a closer relationship and a closer understanding of each other. I think that would have been a lot more of a stronger, it would have been stronger writing. I think it would have been a better arc for both characters. And I think that, you know, Peyton Reed, I think he was trying to do that, but I just don't think it was executed as well as it, as it could have been. Interesting point, because like as you're talking through that, there's a couple moments that kind of jump to to the mind when you think about the relationship between Cassie and Scott. And when he admits that he had been in jail four times, that that was kind of a cool like I'm, I'm thinking extrapolating on what you're talking about, about him admitting that to her and her thinking, well, maybe my dad isn't so different than me. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like that that's a moment where you would have potentially ex- expressed that piece of it. And it's interesting you bring that up because I, I didn't really, I didn't really look at their arcs too closely in the movie. I just kind of went along for the ride with it. But now that you kind of highlight that, I do see maybe some of the lacking of, of maybe that conflict that leads them into the quantum realm and kind of develops and, and kind of coming up the other side. You know, I guess like what you're saying is you would have liked to have seen them at odds here. And then when they're coming out, they aren't. And so those yeah, characters have closeness. progressed. Because I mean, like, yeah. you know, we're, we're both, both fathers with daughters. And it's kind of, it's, I like to see that in certain movies where people come together. You know, we have this great show at the moment with The, the Last of Us. And that's the whole thing. You know, you have these mm. two people who are very different and very distant. And yet through their adventure and their traveling together, they, they become close and they have a better understanding of each other. And it's always a really good um, arc to put in a movie because a lot of people can kind of relate to that and or or people would try to strive towards that kind of um, closeness with with their loved ones mm-hmm. so I think with this it just it just felt like they went in with a very similar relationship that they went out maybe they are a little bit closer but I mean he she doesn't really learn that much from him 
and he gets out and he's walking down the street and he's doing the same thing he was doing before. Whereas it would have been nicer of him understanding that it's not all about him, you know, yeah. about him listening to himself on his, his book on the, on the, they make that into a joke, but that could be an issue. He's listening mm -hmm. to himself reading his book, you know, on his tape cassette and he's always at book signings. You know, he's probably attending lots of like celebrity events because he's one of the Avengers who reveals, reveals his identity. Everyone knows who he is. Yeah. So I think that would be a very interesting hmm. story for them to play with. And I, I kind of really wish they'd done that. Whereas what we do get is by the start of the movie and the end of the movie, there's nothing's changed. We've not learned anything. Like everything that we learned about any of it, especially even Kang, we learned from the one who remains. And the movie's essentially an Ant-Man movie, but all we do is really get introduced to um, Cassie as a possible future young Avenger. And I yeah. think that's the only thing it really does. So I, I think that's a little bit of a missed opportunity with, with that movie. Interesting, because uh, I, I don't disagree with you, although like I really all through and through enjoyed this film, but I don't disagree with what you're saying with the character arcs being somewhat flat, like where you basically blast down the quantum realm and then jump back up and you're the exact same. And and then when you zoom back even further and say, you know, what what kind of progression did we make inside of this film holistically? Your characters are relatively in the same spot. You get Cassie has progressed a little bit in the superhero aspect of who she is with the suit and learning how to use it and the yeah. ability to grow and be, um, I don't even know what she's called uh, in the comics and that. But so you get that piece of it. You learn a bit more about Kang via Janet and hope doesn't do a whole bunch you get this weird so yeah you're probably right that ultimately the movie has pretty minimal consequences and even when you look at the main villain kang which we'll get into in a little bit it like he kind of comes and goes and this is meant to be kind of peak kang and it looks like we're not going to see him again yeah there's only there's only one character that actually gets an arc in this movie and that's Modok. He's yeah. the only one who gets any art. He's the only one who learns something about himself and makes a major change and sacrifices himself for something. Nobody else changes as a person and hmm. nobody else has a major effect on anything story-wise by the end of the movie. And that's why I mean, like, I don't, I'm, I'm sounding quite negative. I actually really enjoyed the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's one thing with this movie. It's quite a difficult one for me to talk about. And I can understand why critics are probably going at this movie quite a bit because they're probably looking for very specific things, you know, story development, um, the character arcs uh, and, and all of that stuff that you probably learn in you know, film study school. But I think from a fun perspective, an enjoyment um, point of view I actually really enjoyed it you know I both times I watched it I was never bored and from start to finish I had a good time with this movie and I really did like it and I think there's a lot of fun stuff in there you know but if you're looking at it a little more deeply at certain what it's trying to achieve it doesn't achieve much at all and I don't know if it was trying to or if it was just trying to fill in some blanks that maybe were a little confusing by the time we finished Loki and give an introduction to, of course, a villain that a lot of people are a lot less familiar with. 
and it's a lot more complex. So it's harder for people to understand than say a Thanos who's just a tyrant who mm-hmm. wants to, you know, kill 50% of the population. Um, I think, you know, Kang is a very, very complex villain. And I think it's going to be very hard for them to, especially to the general audience, make it very clear where he's going, you know, what his motivations are and what the possibilities of this villain are. And I think that's what he was trying to do. But at the same time, I do think it's a shame that this was an Atman movie and it never really felt like an Atman movie because nothing was achieved from the start to the end of the movie. Yeah, and it's 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 so interesting because like like I said, as you're as you're breaking this down, I'm kind of reflecting back on all of it because like you, I enjoy this kind of start to finish. I, I there's some good laughs in there. I like being down in the quantum realm, which so a place we've never really spent much time. It had a very cosmic vibe to it mm-hmm. because of the aesthetic of the film, because of the character looks, and I enjoyed that piece of it. And then when you look at it a bit more holistically with Kang and I still find myself like having read Kang comic books and having mm-hmm. un- understand some of this. I still find myself quite confused as to what is going on with Kang and yeah. how we've seen two variants already and and two arguably quite powerful variants. And both of them have been killed by relatively minor characters in yeah. in the MCU. Right. With Sylvie killing he who remains and. I guess functionally Ant-Man killing Kang the Conqueror. Like this is the Conqueror. This is like one of yeah. the big bads. And the end credit scene does lend to the idea that he is in fact dead, that he was banished there because he was more powerful than all of the other Kangs that they should at the end of this. Yeah. His banishment is is confusing. I don't know if it was because he was more powerful. Like I, I was trying to think about this. I do like I think one thing that I love about He Who Remains is that he allowed for himself to be killed. Mm-hmm. And what that's what's great about that character is the essential strength of Kang. He knows exactly what you're going to do. He's a thousand steps ahead of you all yeah. of the time. He's super intelligent and he doesn't need like a super suit to be be powerful. What this movie does is it gives us a Kang who needs his suit to be powerful. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's intelligent, but we never get to see that side of it. And we never get to see that much of his conquering side. You know, we get to see him shooting his lasers. But even in this movie, you know, he jumps down and shoots probably like 10 people and then gets defeated by a bunch yeah. of ants. Yeah. So, that we... Was not... <laughs> <laughs> so we don't really get to see, is this Kang powerful or is he not? I don't know. I left this movie like, is he supposed to be? Because... If that guy is the most powerful Kang, we're in trouble for the rest of this. Um, well, it's, story. it's, well, I walked out thinking, or I walked in thinking that Kang was going to be more powerful than Thanos, uh, a bigger, grander threat than Thanos. But when you see Loki season one, the first episode, they kind of step all over the Infinity Stones and saying, eh, you know, these are just trinkets, right? Like time is actually the big bad here and Mm -hmm. manipulation of it. And the multiverse is a much bigger story, Mm -hmm. but subsequently through this film, I feel like Kang is, is just another villain, but not on the scale of a Thanos where we, we don't, I, he doesn't seem formidable at this point. 
and this being the conqueror because we see the other variants like this is i think truly meant to be kang the conqueror the one who has been pervasive throughout the history of the avengers and the in the comic books and the one just like with his suit and his look and all this and then you look at the other ones that we see at the end get iron lad and amortis and these these type of characters right Mm -hmm. and so they're different versions of him um but this conqueror one almost feels like he's come and gone like he was i think he was sent there because doesn't he who remains in loki season one refer to many have come and gone but then one showed up and that's what caused the problems no, I think he, because I think in that he just basically says, you know, I've because he, he said I've been called a conqueror, I've been called this and this, and he he even uses the word conqueror. Mm-hmm. Um, he says I've been called, which is kind of confusing. I guess that just means a variant of him. Yeah, I think he's saying like but the I, variants of him have been called. He's been called these, many these, different things. Yeah, I don't. But the thing is, like, I don't think this is what caused. Like, this didn't cause the problem. Like, this is actually explained in the, this movie, and this is another very confusing thing where. What's not explained is at the very, at the mid credit scene, um, Immortus says, you know, what we've created. And I don't really understand that what they have created because, because the idea is that, you know, time had, there were variants. Variants have always existed because we see that in Loki when there are no Kangs, only the one who remains, you know, Kang, there's always been variants, but what happens is these timelines lead to, a version of Kang in many cases, and these Kangs then learn how to travel across mm-hmm. the multiverse, and this is what causes causes all the problems. In this movie, what Kang the Conqueror says is that you know he started to notice all of these incursions and all of these issues, and it just became very messy. So his choice was to then go in and try and clean things up by destroying populations, planets, and multiverses and, and whole universes. And I don't really understand that, like. So to prevent an incursion, you're going to just destroy the universe anyway. So I was really... An incursion is, and this is from the comic books, when one universe and another universe collide with one another. So if you destroy one, you... And they do this through the Jonathan Hickman run. If you destroy one, then you preserve one of them by destroying the other. But I think if you destroy too many, you end up causing a bigger problem down the road. Oh, okay. With the but yeah, so therefore, the Kang the Conqueror is actually a, a kind of version of the one who remains. He's trying to do the same thing mm. in a way that he's trying to create control. The one who remains is, like, if you think about it, he's crazy powerful. This guy can travel the multiverse just with these little tempads. Yeah. And this guy can have these little device which actually wipes out a whole timeline without Kang the Conqueror going in and blowing up the planets and the universes. Mm. And uh, so. He's like a, an updated, stronger version of Kang the Conqueror. And he's trying to, in a, in a way, do the same thing. But rather than just save universes, he's trying to just have one, you know, one timeline by making sure that no other Kang variant exists. Mm-hmm. So it all becomes a little kind of confusing in that sense, whereas I don't, like Kang the Conqueror is... Is he really that powerful? Is he is he important in any way? And therefore, we're, we're juxtaposing have... him against like a, a Thanos, or we're, ju- we're looking for like the next big bad. And something that I've always thought the MCU is going to run into problems with is that they are always looking to escalate to do the next big thing. How mm. do you get bigger than Thanos? 
how do you get bigger than the infinity stones Well, you go to a threat that spans the multiverse and that's what they're doing but coming out of this film i don't feel like that threat is bigger anymore i think already i I, risk, do. I think that like the concept is bigger but yeah. there's usually in these you you have an individual that you place as kind of the representation of that threat yeah. and kang is that but the conqueror i always thought was meant to be like the 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 kang that is going to eventually cause all the problems oh, okay so he's like the big bad and yeah i think i, I totally agree with you there like he doesn't he never comes across as the big bad and i think i wonder if there is a big bad are they going to have one big bad guy because i think you're right there like i mean like thanos the thing is thanos is actually quite weak and he's he, he can only use the the infinity stones within his 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 universe his his mm-hmm. timeline but the truth is like you know kang is f- way further than that and there's there's so oh, yeah. many kangs in but as you said like it never f- feels like kang is a big bad in this and it doesn't feel like any of the kangs that we've seen so far are the big bad and it makes me wonder are they going to have one big bad kang and I think they they do resolve a little bit of that in the end credit scene. It's interesting that we have a whole movie here and we spent most of it talking about the end credit scene and Kang. So maybe that goes to tell you a little <laughs> bit of what you were talking about. The substance maybe is lacking. But what it seems like the, the direction they're going with the Kangs is that the Kang dynasty isn't a single Kang ruling over a multiverse. It is a grouping of Kangs mm-hmm. that are i guess they speak to this at the end where they say that the interest of the superheroes of of the multiverse is becoming concerning and so the, their control over the multiverse potentially is being put at risk and they don't like that and so it's going to be a grouping of kangs that eventually create war world or what have you yeah um, that to to really get rid of all of the the superheroes and all that and so it seems that it is going to be a little bit more complex a little bit less singular villain focus like it's not going to be a galactus it's not going to be a thanos it's going to be a grouping because even when throughout this whole movie the cannon fodder army i had always assumed that those are just other kangs that um that kang had kind of brought in but I guess that really doesn't make sense because you never see their faces. And I thought for the whole oh, movie okay. that they're going to smash the face off and that was going to be Jonathan Majors under there. And you're going to yeah. have like these Kang armies where it's all these variants that he's pulled in. But it, uh, yeah, the, the whole Kang concept and the villain concept of this, and I think that's why we're speaking to it so much, is because it has such larger implications. Like as we went yeah. through the Infinity Saga, Thanos popped up in Guardians 1. And he showed up in a few end credit scenes, but you really didn't get much of this character until Infinity War. Where here they're spending a lot, like they spent a whole movie introducing and having the main villain be a variant of what is the grander villain. Yeah. And so we've had a TV show too where we got to spend an hour with a variant. So we spent a tremendous amount of time with this Avengers villain. Mm-hmm. inside of this movie and in Loki season one to kind of set up something. So it, it is a little different. And that aspect of it is 
it's still a little little loose. Like they spent a lot of time here explaining things only to have the conqueror be killed off by the end of this movie, which I thought was an odd decision. Um, yeah. To be I honest. mean, like, there's a chance that he's not gone. I mean, he but they say it. They say it at time. the end. They say the conqueror has died or has been killed. Oh, that's true. In the end credits, they do yeah. say that. Yeah. Unless they don't know. I mean, he could be sucked into this time vortex. He could gr- get a greater understanding of time over anyone. Yeah. I mean, he could be someone who comes back with, you know, the greatest power of all. But yeah, I I don't really see that happening. Mm-hmm. I think. Mean, I mean, I think it's a really interesting concept. I really like it, and I too. do think once you realize what it is, it is actually really clever and it is really good. I think a lot of people going in thinking, "Wow, they're setting up a Kang, and this Kang feels really weak." But the thing is, all they're doing is basically it's just an Ant Man movie where they're using a Kang variant as the villain for that movie. And I think mm-hmm. what's problematic is just the fact that the movie doesn't really go anywhere and doesn't serve any purpose. And I think that's the weakness of the movie. But I do think it's interesting way to approach it where you're in different content, you're showing the audience different versions of Kang. Mm-hmm. So you just become familiar that there are more than one version of this Kang and they all have different um, strengths. They all have different um, approaches and they all have different motivations. And then, you know, that's what's going to be interesting later on in it, where you're going to have this chaos where you'll have the Kang dynasty and you'll have Kangs ruling different universes. And then you'll start to have all these universes fighting one another for survival. And it'd be Kangs, like like we we were told in at the end of Loki, you know, it's all the Kangs fighting to save their universe and who is going to be the, the top Kang. And yeah. it's not just the Kang, it's the people who are part of that universe also trying to fight for the universe. And I think it's going to play out really well. It's just the way that they're doing it. It's it's becoming very confusing. Like that mid credit scene, like I had no idea what they were doing. They're saying like, okay, so the heroes are now touching, the heroes of um, uh, 616 are touching the multiverse. So we're going to step in. But it then makes me think, wasn't that what Kang the Conqueror was doing? Like he was trying to clean up things because universities were becoming mixed so i think i think like the way i took it was that they're starting to like manipulate it and play with it the same way that they do and they don't want anyone else playing with time like the kangs do okay the kangs have ownership over this idea and this ability to move around and with there being a few incursion points into the multiverse that the, the and becoming aware of it is that that's a problem for them. I see. Um, so they kind of banished Kang the Conqueror just because of his way of dealing with it. I would so think that, that's kind of how it is. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot more sense. I want to throw something at you here. Like this this is kind of it's an interesting conversation because typically in in film reviews, you know, we walk through things there's points and I think that you aptly pointed out at the start of this is that there's not a lot of substance to the superhero aspect of it, but we just spent 40 minutes talking about the villain. Is mm-hmm. this actually a Kang movie with a supporting cast of, of Ant-Man, Wasp, Cassie Lang? You know what I mean? Like if you look at a typical hero's journey in a lot of these superhero films, like you said, they change from one aspect of the film or one place in the film they come to the other side they're different if you flip this on his head and say well this is actually a kang movie and 
things are happening around him. With good villains, you have an arc inside of that villain. There is change. But at times, sometimes it's just a cannon fodder villain. Mm-hmm. And is that what we're seeing here is that they've actually written a Kang movie and have everything else orbiting around it. And that's why we don't see the development of uh, Ant-Man I... and all that. Like, is 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 this more of a vehicle to set up the future of the MCU than it is to develop any any of the heroes that we do see inside of this film specifically? Yeah, I th- I think so. I, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a Kang movie because like we just talked about, the Kang actually ends up being a little bit irrelevant. Like this isn't that, it's not that Kang's movie. Mm-hmm. But as you said, I think it is essentially a overall Kang movie. And as it's, you know, the, the first movie of this phase, I guess that's the whole idea of it. It's more of just here is more of this villain. The fact that the two, the end credit and the the mid-credit scene are both Kang-focused. Mm-hmm. You know, the, especially the first time I watched it, I definitely came out and said, this isn't an Atma movie. This is this is a Kang movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the best performance comes from, from Jonathan Majors. Um, and we get to see so much. We get to see almost equally as much Kang as we do any other character. So it kind of seems like it's a little bit of a, a, a young Avengers set up with Cassie and it seems like it's more of a, a Kang. Uh, it's it's making people a little bit more familiar with Kang. You know, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a precursor to what we're going to get with these other movies. And maybe because like in some of the movies that we're going to get in the near future, we're not going to probably hear about Kang or see anything about Kang. So no. it's probably, you know, let's give them a big chunk of Kang because we're going to have to bring him in later and people are going to have to be familiar with that and it's probably better to do that with the first movie because we've had a bit of a break everybody's going to go and see this movie and therefore maybe we'll use a character that's less important like ant-man that we don't that isn't so loved by everybody so people aren't hurt by the fact that we're not necessarily utilizing that character and progressing his story so yeah i I definitely do think so well i think along the same lines is that is ant-man and his this film universe, his film universe, has it been sacrificed because they needed to do something with Kang? You know, like you're not going to sacrifice the next Captain America movie or Thunderbolts movie or, or anything like that. Right. You can, they've used the quantum realm as a mechanism to keep the story isolated for now so that you're not spilling out into the real world or the 616 universe. Like you're able to contain this whole story inside of the quantum realm and have no net effects mm-hmm. on the grander MCU until something more, right? It acts as a bit more of a catalyst because everyone's got their fingers in the, in the multiverse right now. And has this been, like I said, a sacrificial film of a character, like you said, that is, I wouldn't say it's not, I wouldn't say bottom tier, but it's definitely not top tier character when you relate him to the likes of like your Thors and guardians and all that. So you're not sacrificing yeah that and so the lack of progression and character development does it actually even matter in the grander things and i don't like people get upset like every movie should stand on its own and i don't know if i'm there anymore like i view this as a chapter or a single book inside of a 30 book arc or saga and the fact that like does Paul Rudd need really need to advance? Yeah, maybe like to see him and his daughter advance a little bit, but like, is it required for the MCU? Maybe it's required for an Ant Man movie, and maybe that was a sacrifice. But like, 
does Paul Rudd need to move? Has Paul Rudd really moved much well, in no, all I of think, his appearances inside of the MCU? No, I think I think that's that's the main point. I think you touch on a really good point there. The thing is, if you look at the past movies, Paul Rudd shines when he's a supporting character. And mm. it's not even just in the MCU, it's in most movies. You know, he's a great actor and he's really fun, but he's always great as a supporting character in a lot of movies. And I think he's been that, like, you know, when we see him in um endgame he's great in that and he's great in uh uh civil war as well like he's great as that kind of side character but i think as a standalone character you'd ask most people and most people are less familiar with the ant-man movies so a lot of people haven't watched them or you know it's not anybody's favorite character in terms of the mcu so i think he is a character that you can do this kind of thing with um but i do think that like I said earlier, I do think you can still make a movie that has development for the character, not in the wider scale, not in the scale of the MCU, not progressing his character as a superhero and where he is in the MCU world, but just as a, as a, a character development in terms of, as we said, you know, him forming a relationship with his daughter. Just something a little stronger there where, you know, mm. it gives the movie its standalone purpose where you can watch it stand by itself and you can see this moving story of him, you know, having this relationship with his daughter. Like I watched yesterday, I watched a movie which most people wouldn't say is one of their top movies. But I love this. The most rewatchable MCU movie for me is Black Widow. And mm, interesting. while it, it's not my best, like I can watch that so many times because you can watch it by itself. It doesn't have any major effect on anything that progresses because everything's already happened by the time Black Widow happens. We've gone through all that before. But you get this really great development through different characters, through Natasha and, and her sister. And you get this great intro where there's so much emotion with these daughters and they had they're ripped out of their, their lives and separated from their parents and separated as sisters and that first 10 minutes i felt there was more emotion in that first 10 minutes of that movie than the whole of this Sandman movie mm -hmm. so i think you can make these standalone movies that don't ha necessarily have any impact and have other purposes such as progressing a villain or giving someone a character that they enjoy and have something going on within that movie that doesn't have to ever be talked about again that has no effect on the the greater the greater story and i think that's one thing with this movie and i think that's the criticism that uh, comes from a lot of people where it would have been nice to have something within this one movie like a lot of the characters didn't really like for example hank what what was hank's purpose in this whole to bring movie? the ants <laughs> like but that, but that's, but that is such a like that's great. But why didn't they do that? Like, if Hank at the start of this movie, he lands there in the quantum realm. He's got his earpiece in. I was wondering why he's wearing his earpiece. He hears the ants, and when he asks, you know, um, Michelle Pfeiffer's character, when he asks her what, why is this place so dangerous? She's like, she's silent like five times, and I wanted to like shout, scream, just tell them what the problem is. <laughs> but if she just said to him, look, there's a dude down here. He's super powerful. He's got an army. Hank could be like, okay, so I'm going to go on my own little mini adventure and go and get these ants. And we could have got this whole little side story where Hank is relevant and he goes off and he meets these ants and he convinces them to help him. And then when it comes back, it'd be a lot more impactful and you get his own little story within this movie. 
But I just feel like a lot of it was just like, there's no, you don't get to see anybody actually do anything of any importance. No one gets their time to shine. And then they all go home. It's like, you know, um, Scott is like, you know, uh, I don't have to, I don't have to win. I just don't, you know, we just both have to lose. And then he kind of sacrifices himself for 10 seconds because like, um, can get sucked into this vortex and then Cassie opens the portal. Yeah, and, and they just like, walk through. It's like, but I just, nobody takes any risks. The movie doesn't take any risks. There are not really any um, separate stories or anything that's semi-interesting about the movie. And I think that's that's the biggest weakness of this movie. It's super fun. And I, I think, think for yeah. you, like as a Galaxy fan, Galaxy and Star Wars fan, and me too, like that's the great thing about it. So I love that kind of sci-fi element. I love seeing all those aliens and these worlds and a different place. And I think that's what's really great with this movie. But I do think it's lacking in that kind of story, um, you know, the the plot element of it, which is a shame. It's it's like you you put you bring up such great points throughout this. Like I I gave this film almost no thought. Like I went in. I smiled. I enjoyed it. I came out and I said, I'm a little bit more confused about the quantum realm and time travel. I know a little bit more about Kang and these characters. They kind of pick them up, play with them a little bit and put them right back down. Like you said, in the exact same spot, like no one really progresses. Then I step back and look at it and said, does that matter? Like I know, and I'm not trying to give this movie a pass because it's, it's pretty shallow ultimately like in its, depth of writing and his character progression and you bring up some great stuff about hank like why didn't he go off and do this and then there's this throwaway line about the ants going through a different vortex and advancing thousands and thousands of years just well, so dude, that... those ants those ants who were walking distance away from kang why didn't kang know they existed <laughs> 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 like they come running over the mountains like kang didn't know these guys were here <laughs> well this is this is the problem with with this kang is that he just it doesn't feel it feels like an Ant-Man villain, not an Avengers level villain, if you know what I mean, the way it's framed out in all of this, that, you know, two of the Avengers, like it took all of the Avengers that you could ever think of and every good guy character to take down Thanos, but arguably the guy that's meant to be the next big bad was taken down by two of the people that were present in that endgame battle battle, and, and a bunch of ants. And mm. so it, it does... I think it, I think it, this movie, although introducing Kang and introducing some of the concepts, I think it ultimately hurts him as a big bad, as an individual big bad, like the grander, maybe all of the Kangs that show up at the end. Sure. That can be your threat, but like, I think it undermines Kang as a threat ultimately. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people who are used to the MCU and used to how superhero movies play out, they're probably looking for, you know, that one big bad. And I think, if that's what you're looking for, it's going to be very confusing what mm -hmm. this is trying to achieve. My my biggest, I actually had no problem with Kang. I actually thought, I actually quite liked that character. And I think, you know, Jonathan Major's performance mm -hmm. in that was incredible. It's great. The, for me, the biggest hurt is that, like, if that Kang's gone, like, that's my favorite Kang so far. Mm -hmm. Like, I love that role that he played. And I love how he embodies that character. Those Kangs that were on in that mid credit scene, like, man, please don't give me those Kangs in much depth because... Like a Mortis and what is it, Rumatut or something like that? But it just felt very 
Iron Lad. <laughs> it just seemed really because we never get to. See, it just basically looked like Jonathan Majors putting on different costumes and trying to act with different mannerisms and use different a different voice each time. Why were they all barking in that stadium too? Uh, well, I I think because that's from the comic book, right? So it's like a scene that's actually from the comic book where they're shouting at each other and stuff, and it's 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 ripped straight out of the comic. But I think the problem is that in the comic. It is comical, you know, it's not, I think when you translate that to live action, you're like, what's going on here? Like all these different Kangs and everyone's barking and shouting and people are popping up at different places. And then you've got people are wearing the same suit as Kang the Conqueror. So are they all as powerful as Kang the Conqueror? Because they've got exactly the same suit on as he has. And then it gets really confusing because you're like, well, what was the point there were no stakes in this movie in the end because it didn't really matter if they defeated kang or not to be honest if kang got out all these other kangs would probably have stopped him again anyway so i don't know man this is this is a very confusing conversation this is the most confusing discussion i don't even call it a review this is more of like <laughs> us trying to unravel the relevance of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania and if it has any knock-on effects so i think that you've established really well that the the movie in and of itself, it doesn't progress anything. And so I'm here trying to pull on these threads, trying to understand if if there's something larger at play here that is more subtle and has like these grander consequences. But they did a better job in Loki, I think, with Kang. Well, Loki I, told Loki, I think Kang and Loki told us exactly how it all plays out. So basically, mm-hmm. he just told us, they basically showed us what he told us would happen but the very 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 start like you know how this is introduced i i actually like it i like that i think for me like if this movie had some character arcs and it stood alone and it didn't serve any greater purpose i would still really like this movie because Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun and i think you know if it had that emotion between um scott and his daughter you know i never felt moved and i never felt their closeness it never felt real to me like yeah. when in Endgame, he goes back to the house, that actress, when she comes out and she's shocked at first and she comes out and she's like trying to contain her emotions, starts crying. That scene is, there's nothing like that in this movie. And I think that scene in Endgame was way more effective than this relationship mm-hmm. that we got in this movie. So if they, if they'd really focused on that and made that a bit more impactful, and if they gave the side characters a little bit more, of uh, a purpose you know they each go off on their own quest and do something i think this would have been a very very strong movie as a standalone movie and i think it would be one that people would re-watch i think it's mm-hmm. an easy watch it's something that you can return to the problem is when you get to the end of this and then you end up having these mid-credit scenes and then you kind of imply that it does have a bigger purpose in the grander scale then you start to question you know whether it, it achieved its goal um and like, you know, we're saying maybe it just didn't have, it wasn't trying to in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. You no, know, the one character before we kind of start to begin to wrap this up, Modoc. Interesting inclusion, callback to, to Ant-Man 1 with Darren Cross being Modoc and the little tiny, I guess with him getting his face mask bashed in and shrunk down to the quantum verse uh, or the quantum realm inside of Ant-Man 1, he ends up things disproportionately shrinking and he ends up becoming Modoc. And like you said, he does have an arc in this where he is different and redeems himself 
by the end. I don't know. I struggle with the look of Modok. Like it looks, <laughs> it looks stupid in the comics, but this one especially was just like kind of goofy looking. Yeah. Like, I think like you know they had the the TV show as well. Um, I I started to watch that on Hulu, which is like an animated thing. You know, I think if they kept it very similar to the comics, it probably would have looked better. For me, I think it was a bit of a CGI issue where it never looked like a 3D face to me. It no. kind of looked like a hologram on yeah. a flying thing. So the face always looked flat. It never looked like a real head. Yeah. I so I think that was a little bit of trouble. Like and the guy's he was... head up against a big magnifying glass. <laughs> yeah. And if you're going to be, if you're going to be Kang, this ultimate conqueror, you know, and you create the ultimate fighting machine, like, why would you use someone that's just like humorous and idiotic and <laughs> like it was it was a weird one i i i didn't mind it as much as a lot of people the part that i didn't like was the humor side of it like that yeah. whole i think the worst one of the worst scenes in the whole of the mcu is that part where he's like on the floor and he's like you know what what do i do like how can i she's like don't be a dick yeah, and he goes, but but look at me, I I am a dick. Yeah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I was like, and I was watching like, is this real? Is this like, did someone actually write this? And she goes, it's never, it's never, there's never a bad time to stop being a dick. <laughs> and I was just like, what? Oh yeah, <laughs> who wrote this? So I, the human, the human actually, like you said earlier that that there were some funny parts for me. The human never hit for me, but I. I think that's my problem because I do think I'm very, um, I have very uh, different sense of humor. I think as well, some maybe it's a British thing, but I do think certain things, I like things to be quite witty or sometimes dry or mm. whereas like that kind of very kind of slapstick style humor or something that's quite obvious or scripted, it never, it never works with me. So I never in this movie did I laugh. I, 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 I'm a, I laughed at things that Paul Rudd did. There's like certain moments in there that I, I really like his delivery. I could have done completely without this Modoc thing. Uh, to okay. me, this was this was the biggest distraction inside of the whole movie was this Modoc piece. <laughs> and like, but honestly, you strip it back, you take, I don't know, 10 to 15 minutes off this movie, and then maybe you can do more with the characters, like you said. You could do a Hank side mission. You could dig a bit deeper into, into Janet because that's another piece where they they really started leaning into it. And I liked that they tethered Janet Van Dyne more, I guess, more tangibly to Kang and the quantum realm, that there's something bigger there. And she never expected to go back. And so she was like, I'm not going to, but then it kind of just drags on a little bit. Like you said, there's too many opportunities for her to be like, like you said, like, Hey, so there's this really powerful guy here. We should probably look at stopping. Let's go visit some of my old friends that aren't Bill Murray that actually are a fighting force and maybe try to put something together here. And like yeah, everything just so kind of haphazardly comes right? together. Yeah. It seems like a reoccurring theme where they ask them, ask, she gets asked several times and she's just like, I'm not going to talk about it now. Let's not, talk, it's not important now. We've got to do this. No, look, I'm not going to talk about it. Or she's just silent. Um, mm. And it makes, yeah, I think the idea they're trying to set this idea that maybe she was partly to blame for what happens and she feels 
responsible for yeah. for a lot of it. And like they said, like she she wouldn't she could never have known. And I mean, like I do understand that part of it. I also think Michelle Pfeiffer's performance in this is probably after John Major John Major's Jonathan Major's the second best yeah um, performance. Like she's a really great actress in this, and um, I'm glad that they give her that kind of time to shine because I think with Michael Douglas, he's not his heart's not necessarily in it as much. Um, you know, he probably wants to get out of it soon, but I think with Michelle Pfeiffer, she really does drive that side of the story, and I do I do think she she did play a, a bigger part than a lot of the the more mm. important characters in this in this movie yeah all right man well we kind of muddled our way through that i think it was uh, definitely more of us exploring some of the confusion pieces and trying to rationalize out some of it so i hope that you guys took a little something away from that and like um if we're asking these questions a lot of people are probably asking for very similar questions but give me your kind of wrap up here ian what are your what are your final thoughts here on ant-man and the lost quantum mania uh, I think it's a, a, a really fun movie. Um, as I said, I never felt bored through the whole thing. You know, I'll use the word that the vigilante 39 guys use. They use, love to use the word bombastic. And I think it's a very big kind of bombastic sci-fi movie where you do get to see all these great characters. You get to see this new world and you get to have a lot of fun with it. Um, I just think that it, there's a lot of missed opportunities. It's a little messy. It's not something that, you know, I don't think a lot of people would return to just just because it doesn't have that emotional impact. Um, and yeah, it is. I think if you go in there knowing that this is, you know, a kind of prequel, a precursor to what is to come, and it's just trying to familiarize yourself with the possibility mm. of other variants. I think, you know, you can go in this movie and, and really enjoy it, especially if people like Paul Rudd, like you can't not enjoy watching that guy yeah. on screen. He's just, he, as you said, his delivery is great. He's really funny. He's really charismatic um cassie uh she's you know the new actress Catherine Nguyen. i think she's going to show a lot more potential later on um i've seen some clips of her in early stuff i've never seen her in early movies or shows but she's actually really talented so i do think it's great that they're setting up these newer characters mm -hmm. um and yeah i mean i enjoyed it i do think you know once it comes out once it comes on, on on Disney, I'll definitely watch it again. And it might be one of those movies that the more you watch it, the probably the more you'll you'll enjoy it because once you know what it is, um, it's an easy one to put on in the background. It's kind of a a lot more rewatchable because it doesn't have those ties to to the greater story. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of it's it's funny because I, I walked into this thinking to myself, I'm gonna I'm gonna defend this thing because I actually I had fun inside of it. I enjoyed going for to the movie theater for a couple hours and consuming an MCU story with some familiar characters and seeing the quantum realm and what it exactly is. And then getting a little bit more on Kang the Conqueror as, as we kind of talk through this. And as I think that you really expertly laid out here, it, there is a lot of holes in this. When you look back at the fundamentals of the character, the character progression, the overall kind of narrative that's doesn't really exist, but as I've tried to draw a comparison to more and more through phase four and through phase five specifically it is towards this becoming more and more akin to a true comic book film universe. In the past, we talked about this connected universe, the MCU, the single narrative, this direct line and the sequential storytelling where every single thing mattered for the thing that's coming after and the thing that came before it. This, it, it just doesn't exist as much, I don't think, anymore. And, you know, can you 
point that this is a uh, degradation in quality or in what they're actually delivering from film to film, maybe. But mm. if I go back to the kind of that comic book comparison, I look at this as almost like, you know, those comic books you pick up that are like one shots that are meant mm. to kick off a story. You read it. You don't really understand it. Not a lot happens in it, but there's a few elements inside of it that are like, I should probably know this for later. Yeah. And that's kind of how I'm treating this movie is that it is a one shot. It is a chapter inside of a movie that in of its own, a single chapter in a movie without the context of the rest of the book. If you read it in isolation, you don't take a whole bunch away from it. But that chapter inside of a bigger story, it matters. And that's the way I'm kind of looking at this is that is it a problem for an isolated single movie that you don't have a huge amount of character progression? Yeah, probably. On the grander scheme of things, on the book scale or the saga scale, maybe it will have some impact and maybe those characters, those arcs that we're looking for inside of the single film will continue beyond. Maybe they won't. But for me, these isolated stories these stories that are really burdened by the MCU nature of it all. I'm okay with these. Sometimes we got black Panther, which was an awesome movie, standalone movie. It could do its thing. We get this one that kicks off something grander. I'm okay with the sacrifice once in a while. And so I get the criticism. I get why people probably or couldn't like this or don't like this, or maybe view it as a weak film. But I kind of look at this as like, it was a two hour fun time that i had i just went and saw this thing on my own and mm -hmm. i kind of en i just enjoyed being a part of it and i kind of like the the story of kang although confusing i'm intrigued i want to see more of kang and so if that yeah. was the goal of the film to get you to want to either try to understand it more or see more of kang then it it, it worked for me it accomplished what it needed to do for me yeah and I think that's, I mean, I think we're seeing that, you know, you look at, I don't want to refer to, you know, Rotten Tomato scores, but audiences are really enjoying this movie. And I think that's, you know, a great way to put it, you know, it's something that maybe you can just go in and you enjoy, you know, it's this big, beautiful movie with great visuals and you have a fun time with it and it doesn't necessarily have to, to mean something. I think if it was presented as that, you know, a lot of people want movies uh, superhero movies to be more like comic books and i think you know we are getting to see that and i think that's the problem with you know maybe back in the day where you have comic books and you have one story everything kind of makes sense because you have one writer working on one story but when it gets to a point the mcu is now where you're just getting so much and you're getting shows and you're getting movies all over the place you know you're going to have things that might contradict other things and you might have things that don't always have to be connected and it's just a fun time you pick it up and you enjoy that one thing by itself it has little things that you can kind of pick and, and match to other parts of the greater story, but it doesn't necessarily have a huge impact on it. And the idea is, yeah, just, you know, go in there, have a good time with that movie. And for me, you know, as I said, I've seen it twice. I saw it. I didn't intend to see it twice. It was just with different people. This is just three days apart. And both times I had a good time with it. I never went in the movie. Nothing annoyed me about the movie. Mm -hmm. And I never left the theater bored. You know, I thought the second time I'm kind of be, be a little you know, I might be a little bored because I know what's going on. I, I enjoyed it again the second time. I was looking for different things and enjoying different things. But I think it's a movie that, yeah, maybe the general audience is going to enjoy more because you don't have to 
think about everything and you don't have to worry about where it connects to and maybe that's why they didn't need those end credit scenes at the end you know making people start to make these connections maybe just keep it very simple you know just keep it this this one story well those are massive end credit scenes like both of those are are pretty big i'm assuming that victor timely the one with loki is directly i seen directly out of loki season two i don't think that was oh, a yeah. specific shot for an end credit um, yeah it was directly out of that and so like but those are like substantial end credit scenes like in introducing iron lad and mortis and Ramatuts and all that like those are like massive characters they're huge yeah and on top of kang the conqueror already being in like this is some pretty big stuff and victor timely like those are some of his most iconic versions that they've introduced in there and like the last end credit scenes we've gotten out of films like there hasn't been a whole bunch right for like the grander mcu narrative and this really puts a momentum. But like I said earlier, we spent a good chunk of time of this discussion. I'm calling it a discussion, not a review talking about Kang. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm landing that this is a Kang movie or a Kang vehicle with a supporting cast of, uh, of the Ant-Man universe. So <laughs> can I ask one question? I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. When they first decided that they were going to, cause I know that they announced this quite a while ago, this movie, and they always, you know, Kang was always the villain. Do you think Kang was always intended to be the main villain of this phase when I, they announced that? Or do you think he was an idea for the third the third movie because it's time related? And then they later decided that Kang would become the big villain. Well, like this movie isn't specifically time related. Like it's the quantum realm and inside of that quantum realm, time doesn't matter. And so this could have been it didn't need to be kang right it could have been a quantum monster or a quantum villain that if escapes causes and wreaks havoc on the earth and they have to keep him in there right there's That's nothing true. specific about the multiverse even in this movie I, they might they speak to it and they elaborate on it for the benefit of i think the bigger multiverse saga yeah that's a good point yeah but I think Kang was always meant to be the next big villain and time and the multiverse were meant to be the quote unquote infinity stones. Like the thing that is being pursued, the MacGuffin of the bigger MCU story, that Mm -hmm. escalation piece of it all. I think that was always planned and it was always confusing to me, like why Kang was being used in an Ant-Man movie because Kang is, and traditionally has in the comics been an Avengers level threat. And so it, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's going to be, like I said, it's got me so intrigued to see what's next. Like I'm, I'm way more invested, I think in the bigger MCU story now than I was going into Ant-Man and the Wasp quantum. Yeah. Like I, I think I'm invested not nearly to the same degree, but you're starting to think about like the early seeds of, of Thanos, right? Like him popping up here and there. And you're starting to be like, what's this guy about? What, what's the next piece going to connect into? And so, like I said, I think it accomplishes that. Yeah. And it gets you intrigued about the bigger MCU story while sacrificing the Ant-Man film at the end of the day. But yeah, I agree. And as well, like, I mean, we're going to get Loki two, season two soon. Yeah. And for me, Loki, that still remains my favorite of the MCU show. So good, man. So, so like I, th- I think the fact that this Kang, you know, especially Jonathan Majors playing it, 
seeing him in these two roles and how great he's been and how different he's been, you know, it excites me that we're now going to get Loki season two, where we're going to get another mm-hmm. version of that, if not more. Um, so, yeah, I think as I think you make, again, a good point there. Like it does, you know, enhance that excitement. It does make us more intrigued on, on what's going to come next. And that's maybe that's it. I mean, that probably is the main goal of of this movie. So, when yeah. it's and like to go back to the comic book analogy in a six issue or 10 issue or 20 issue if you go to hickman 50 issue arc every book doesn't substantially progress characters mm-hmm. every book doesn't move the needle the same way that maybe the six issue does or the 10th issue does but every book might have just a couple panels that actually matter and you're just kind of telling a fun story in the middle. You're exploring with the art. You're exploring with visuals. Maybe that's all this is. It's it's the third book in a 20-book arc, right? You've kicked it off somewhere else. You've told impactful stories. And this is just getting between issues two and four. Well, adding something, one thing to the bigger story arc, but not necessarily a whole bunch in that single issue. That's kind of the way like I'm framing all of this stuff out in my mind is that mm-hmm. I'm not expecting this movie and never was expecting this movie to be a civil war, to be really kind of anything that like a, a winter soldier or a Wakanda forever. Like this is just, you flip. Through, it's one of those books you flip through, you take a little bit of a way. There might be an asterisk somewhere in a future movie that says, go back to Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania. You know, those little boxes you get in comic books, little asterisks as seen in Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania. <laughs> Maybe that's all it is. It's a footnote in a big, in another bigger story, another bigger movie. And that, yeah. and that, that, and sometimes that's just okay. Like yeah. I get it. I understand the criticism, but it is what it is guys. And look, man, I had a lot of fun talking this through. I feel, I feel a bit, I feel more excited for the grander MCU narrative and I'm not as hot on kind of some of the misses inside of this. But uh, but ultimately, it's a lot of fun, man. So I appreciate you coming on here and uh, and talking this through with me. Same same here. I think as well. Like for me, it's definitely become a little bit clearer what this this movie is. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I had a good time with it. And I think you know, it's nice for me to to talk about those missed opportunities with somebody and share those yeah. just to see see your thoughts your thoughts on them. Um, Interesting. But at the same well, time, yeah, just to see feel feel other people's excitement too. So it's good. Always. And that's that's what these discussions are about here in the Nerd Room. It's it's about extending the experience of the film and not necessarily telling you how to think one way or another. So if you loved it, great. If you didn't, cool. That's that's on you. But this discussion is about kind of enhancing or extending that experience. And if you guys want to do more of that, you can always email us at nerdroom at gmail.com. You can find everything we do over the nerdroom.net. Twitter, I, we're, I'm back on Twitter in a big, bit bigger way, so you can catch me there. And if you've made sense of anything that Ian and I have talked about, you can catch us there. Our handles are at the end of the episode. And YouTube, guys, there's some there's great videos up there that we've put together. Ian's currently compiling some stuff. I got some ideas. Uh, my nerd room is is kind of set up. I'm gonna, I think in my next video, I'm gonna do. I gotta get one more riser. But I'm gonna do a kind of a comparison between the IKEA Mills bows and the IKEA Detolfs from a a collection display aspect because i'm loving these new mills bows and we've got a mm-hmm. toy stream live it's going to be coming up here in the month of march and a whole bunch of other fun stuff so make sure you plug in here every single week every single thursday to the nerd podcast go over and subscribe to that youtube channel so with all that being said 
another discussion of an MCU movie behind us. For The Nerd Room, I'm Tim. And I'm Ian. Thank you so much for entering The Nerd Room. This has been a Nerd Room Podcast production. You can find our hosts Tim and Carlos on Twitter at TheNerdRM and CDN Caped Crusade R. For more content from The Nerd Room, check out TheNerdRoom.net and The Nerd Room YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe to The Nerd Room on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, wherever you plug in. Use the hashtag WeTheNerd to keep up with the latest from The Nerd Room.